This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Wildfires are burning across Colorado. One in Summit County forced the evacuation of hundreds of homes around Silverthorne. There's been a full air assault on the Buffalo Mountain Fire. Farther south, the 416 fire rages. It forced thousands of evacuations. Megan Graham is with the La Plata County Sheriff's Office, and she's on the phone from Durango. Megan, welcome to the program. Hi, good morning. Some residents there were able to go home this morning. Others remain evacuated. It is hot today around the state. It's dry. And we are probably in for a long summer of wildfires. So I want to help Coloradans understand what goes into an evacuation order. What are some of the things you take into consideration when you issue one? Well, obviously, the first consideration is public safety. Um, If there's fire behavior or uh, conditions that suggest that residences and and the folks who live in them could be at risk, that's the primary concern that uh, the fire team and the sheriff's office looks at when considering an evacuation order. I think another important factor to consider is the safety and effectiveness of of the fire teams. You know, if if having residents in their communities is going to impact fire operations, then that's another um, thing that folks need to consider when when, um, thinking about evacuation orders. Those are kind of the two main things, public safety, of course, being the, the primary issue. When you say whether residents might be in the way of the firefighting efforts, what do you mean? I know that you you keep an eye towards roads and making sure that those are accessible to firefighters. Right. Roads is is the main thing. And just, you know, access to people's property. Sometimes um, the fire teams are going in and doing mitigation, uh, limbing branches, uh, digging fire lines, things like that. And if that's going to be happening, you certainly don't want folks in their homes you know, being concerned about that activity and and also potentially being at risk because of the fire. I also know that you fight fire with fire, and that is to burn up fuels uh, under some control as opposed to it getting out of control. And those are activities, I think, going on alongside the 416 fire. Correct. Yeah. Uh, the last couple of days, the fire team has been doing active backburning, they call it. And that is, as you say, fighting fire with fire. So, um, igniting. Um, they've, they've been using the term uh, to create a catcher's mitt, essentially, so the, the fire can come toward the fire and they have something that it can burn into um, and, and contain it that way. And that's been putting a lot of smoke up into the air, um, but it's it's actually doing what the team wants it to do. All right. When a mandatory evacuation is issued, uh, I do people have to evacuate? Is it truly mandatory? Like, are there penalties if people choose not to leave? No, there aren't penalties, um, you know, and we certainly can't force people to leave their homes. Um, but we strongly encourage it and, and remind folks that if they do choose to stay, they are, you know, assuming some risk, essentially. You know, first responders aren't going to be able to go to their home if they have a medical situation, um, and they're, so they're they're creating risk for themselves, and of course, the fire itself um, could be a, a risk if they choose to stay home. But no, the you know we we call them mandatory orders, and we go door to door and ask folks to please leave the area. Um, but folks who choose to stay do so of their own accord. What are ways that people can prepare for an evacuation? Give us just a few quick tips 
Sure. Um, well, just to back up a little bit, we we try as often as we can to put folks on pre-evacuation notice before um, we pull a full evacuation. And when we send those out, we send a long list of, of things that folks should do. Um, first thing is, you know, gather all your important items that you're going to need to be out of your home. Get your medication, get your pets located and in, in a place where you can get them out as quickly as you can. Any important documents that you might need, just find those, get those ready. Um, and then outside the home, you know, we ask folks to look around for things that might be flammable and get them out of um, harm's way. You know, just sort of button up and get ready to go. Um, but the big ones are, you know, medications, important documents, get your passport, things like that, um, because you, you want to be able to uh, be out of your home for a couple of days or longer um, and have your needs met. I was reading a list of things that homeowners can do to prepare their home itself. Uh, things like leaving your lights on so firefighters can see your house under smoky conditions, uh, shutting off mm-hmm. the, the gas at the meter, turning off pilot lights, or all those things. Uh, good ideas, yeah. in your opinion? Yes, I think so, definitely. I mean, it just, it does, um, th- those measures can help to protect your home should the fire come close um, and, and also provide some additional safety measures for firefighters who may be working in the area. We reached out to a spokeswoman for the 416 fire there, Jamie Knight. She says the team in charge of firefighting has brought essentially a mini city to the Animus Valley Elementary School. We've got a large area covered here with firefighting support and apparatus and equipment. And we've kind of we've kind of taken over the neighborhood a little bit. Um, the community has been amazing and is standing behind the firefighters 100 percent is very supportive and thankful for the efforts that are going on out here. So it's just an influx of people to the area. Knight says there are caterers, fire meteorologists, fire behavioralists finance people because these crews have to be paid that have you know all converged on this 416 fire and uh i I wonder if if there has been any property lost so far what's the update there uh no no structure lost so far um this team has been amazing in, in keeping the fire from harming any of the residential or commercial structures that uh, are in the area. Um, all of their their goals so far have been met, and that has to has been to provide structure protection and to keep the uh, highway on the west side. Excuse me, keep the fire on the west side of the highway, which um, uh, the east side is where many of the residences that have been threatened by the fire are. So they've just been working so hard to protect our community and protect people's homes and businesses. Thanks for making time for us. Of course. Thank you. Megan Graham is with the La Plata County Sheriff's Office. It's overseeing evacuations from the 416 fire north of Durango. And while we were talking to Jamie Knight from that firefighting team, she mentioned an expected containment date. Right now it's set for July 31st at midnight. So how do they arrive at such a specific estimate? It is a goal. It is, you know, to the best of our knowledge, each day, that containment date is, is really what we're shooting for. But as, as often seen on large fires, that containment date can kind of move around depending on, you know, the progress that's being made or the fire behavior that's being exhibited or, or whether that's coming in. So there's a lot of factors that go into determining what that containment date is. You can follow all of our wildfire reporting, including the effect on Durango tourism at CPR.org. 
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And I'm Andrea Dukakis. Today we'll visit a different kind of yoga class. One more big breath in. Deep exhale. People hear smoke before they do sun salutations. This is all part of a week of stories on CPR News on cannabis. About five years after recreational marijuana was legalized, other states and even the whole country of Canada are looking at Colorado to see how it's going. Earlier this week, we heard from law enforcement and business owners. Today, the users who prop up the market, like the Coloradans who combine marijuana with namaste. And we'll hear from a veteran in his mountain home who uses cannabis for PTSD. But first, let's take a trip with some out-of-state marijuana enthusiasts. We sent our colleague Alexandra McMahon on a bus ride that caters to tourists with nowhere else to smoke. Yeah, so the bus is run by My420 Tours, and this company calls themselves Leaders in Cannabis Tourism. And they're out near Rhino, and it's in this row of red brick warehouse buildings. When you get there, they have you sign some liability waivers that clarify the health risks that come along with sitting on a smoky bus for several hours. So when it's finally time to head outside, our two tour guides lead us to a giant white limo bus. And there's no signage or logos on the bus, nothing about it that would hint at what 27 people are about to do inside. People just start lighting up right away when they get inside. Well, first, the tour guides introduce themselves, and they are Gage Dunn and Elise Morgan. Welcome to the party bus. If you couldn't tell by all of the accessories, the rolling trays, ashtrays. Uh, you guys can smoke on here. Yeah, so riders were free to consume cannabis in any form they chose, but My420 Tours can't supply any product. The tourists can only use marijuana they brought themselves. And everyone apparently came prepared because in about five minutes, that bus was filled with smoke. Alexandra, I wonder if there were any people on the bus that surprised you that you didn't expect to be on there. I think I went in assuming everyone on the bus would be around my age, you know, millennials, but that wasn't exactly the case. Done quite a bit of growing in my day, all illegal, but... So this is Bill Morin from Florida, and he told me he's been smoking for almost 50 years. He thinks that things are a lot better nowadays compared to decades ago when he got arrested for pot. I started out literally smuggling. Smuggling out? Yeah, it's gone a long ways. Come a long ways. Morin was with his friend Jeff Davis, also from Florida, and Davis hasn't been smoking for quite as long as Morin. He said about 25 years. I'm happy to see all the, the laws finally be a little relaxed. People finally see that, you know, it's not this uh, evil drug that it's been claimed to be for all the years. And people are pretty happy and, you know, we just uh, we don't like our weed, sleep like babies. So there you have a couple of baby boomers, guys in their 70s. Who else? Well, the tour company also told me they've had parents on their buses who have a pretty specific mission. Here's marketing director Cynthia Ord. We get everything from bachelor parties to concerned parents who want to learn a little bit more. You know, they have some kids reaching adolescence and they want to be able to talk to their kids from a place of a little bit more education. But from what I could tell, everyone on my tour was just there to have fun. Okay, so I was imagining this sort of like a beer hopping brewery tour, but this trip just makes a couple of stops, right? 
Right, because marijuana bars aren't really a thing yet, and they might not be anytime soon since Governor Hickenlooper just vetoed a cannabis tasting room bill. Um, But these two stops have a very specific purpose. So learn about something that's not as familiar as beer and get a chance to buy and use cannabis, which is an opportunity that's rare for a lot of these people. I'd say the bus ride itself is one of the main events of this tour because it's one of the few sanctioned places where you can openly use marijuana. You know, this sounds like a great business plan. They make money from people paying for the tour and And then there must be some sort of partnership between the tour business and the businesses where they stop, because I'm sure a lot of people end up buying the product. Yeah, definitely. Uh, My420 Tours partners with other businesses, specifically uh, Euflora, which is the greenhouse that we went to on our first stop. And the Euflora greenhouse is out near Stapleton. And you walk in and it's just a sea of marijuana plants. There are these huge fans that are controlling the climate. There's a lot of natural light streaming in. And our tour guide, Gage Dunn, leads everyone through the rows and rows of plants while he describes what it takes to grow marijuana. So we're going to have a chance to purchase some of this beautiful product. But yeah, I want to open it up. Any other questions you guys have thought of? I understand you're a little starstruck right now. (laughs) So then we got back on the bus and headed to our second and final stop, um, the Euflora 3D Dispensary. So that's the same company that operates the greenhouse. And uh, just like the grow house was a sea of plants, the dispensary is a sea of cannabis product. Everything you could imagine. Candy bars, sodas, wax, flour. And I know sales are way up in Colorado for things like edibles and concentrates. Sales to adults for edibles have risen by nearly 30 percent in the last couple of years. And that's the stuff people had a chance to buy when we got to the dispensary. I also really like this price point, too, for travelers, because even if you aren't planning on taking the battery or the extra coil back home, you can just chuck it. You can try something before you leave. So that's tour guide Elise Morgan showing some tourists a vape pen for cannabis concentrate. And she made a point of saying that whatever these out-of-staters bought could not leave Colorado with them. That's a big no-no. Morgan even walked them through what parts of the pen they could bring back, but basically anything that has cannabis residue on it cannot cross state borders. So is this that the state's trying to enforce this to avoid other states getting mad? More like Colorado's trying to avoid getting in trouble with the federal government. They're watching the state's borders very closely, and so is the U.S. Postal Service. So recently... um, Denver's Channel 7 found that the Postal Service seized a record number of marijuana packages last year, like coming in or out of Colorado. And Attorney General Jeff Sessions reaffirmed his disapproval of legal pot last week here on Colorado Matters. But all that aside, these tourists were very excited to buy some cannabis product. And I caught up with Andrew Knapp from Addison, Texas, who was looking at some different flower strains. Uh, I'm thinking about Pineapple Express. I mean, you know, Because of the movie? Or? Yeah. No, not only just because of the movie. I mean, it's, I guess, the best brand, I guess, one. I don't know exactly, but yeah, a lot of choices. It's very overwhelming. Pretty much everyone on the tour bought something here, except the older guys from Florida, Bill Morin and Jeff Davis. We're going to come back. Are you going to be on the other tour later? No. Are you doing two tours today? Yeah, Yeah, we're making a full day of it. And that was the tour. As we headed back to the company's headquarters in Rhino, the tour guides were kind enough to give everyone some restaurant recommendations. You said people go on this tour because it's not something they have access to every day. But I wonder if there'll be a point as marijuana is legalized in more states that people feel sort of like they've been there, done that. Yeah, that's very true. And I mean, as recreational marijuana becomes more commonplace, users will eventually stop craving this kind of experience. Here's the bus tours marketing director, Cynthia Ord, again. 
Our classic tour has been this grow and dispensary combination, but I think the way we stay relevant is we also add a lot of uh, fun and educational activities that people can do that pair cannabis with other things. Our signature one is our sushi and joint rolling class. Okay, I'm not sure I get this. Is this sushi with marijuana rolled in it? Oh, no, no, no. They bring in a sushi chef and a, quote, expert joint roller, and then they show you how to roll sushi and then show you how to roll a joint. And like Ord says, this is the kind of stuff they're trying to grow their business and also reach different client bases. Right now we're trying to reach different markets like veterans who want to explore cannabis as treatment. We also want to reach like more senior communities like um, assisted living. You also learned about another group of marijuana users who use it for very serious reasons. Yes. Like Ord mentioned, there's been a lot of focus in the industry on vets lately. And there's new bills in Congress that could give veterans access to cannabis all over the country. Alexandra, you went to Divide, Colorado to meet a vet who uses marijuana. Right. Last month, I took a trip to Divide, which is in a really remote part of the state near Colorado Springs. And I met with Army veteran Matthew Kale, who uses cannabis to treat his PTSD. This right here is uh, Bubba Kush. It is probably one of the strains that is most often cited by veterans as a fix for a lot of the symptoms that come with PTSD. Um, Kale served as an infantry member in the Army and did two tours in Afghanistan. After he got out of the Army, he moved to Colorado specifically for the weed and even calls himself a medical cannabis refugee. His house is secluded with beautiful views of the mountains. And he told me when he first got to Colorado, he looked for places in the springs but felt like it was way too claustrophobic for his state of mind. So how did he end up with PTSD? Was it a specific incident? During his second deployment to Afghanistan, a vehicle he was in crashed into a ravine and he was thrown from his position at the gunner turret. He told me he lost a part of his jaw, he lost teeth, and had a traumatic brain injury. And then he says he waited three months in Afghanistan before he was transported back to the U.S. After I was medevaced, I um, I really just circled the drain for a few years. Uh, I was not in any shape to do much of anything. I wasn't in any kind of shape to hold down a job. I just kind of locked myself into my house and uh, refused to come out. Every single day, I was taking heaping piles of pills. Uh, it took multiple swallows and glasses of water to get them all down. And the side effects were horrific. The pills were for his physical pain, but they weren't doing anything to help with his PTSD. There was no way in hell that I could actually go out to, to Walmart or any grocery store and maintain my composure. I would probably lose it and uh, start becoming hypervigilant, watching entrances, exits, watching people. And, uh, and quietly making a plan to kill everyone around me. But Kale says the cannabis changed that. He found himself able to re-enter society without having those kinds of thoughts. When I got here to Colorado, started using cannabis, and I just started stripping away the medications one at a time. The first things to go were the opiate narcotics. It was extremely hard uh, for a couple weeks, but uh, it's the best thing I've ever done, and I've never looked back. He says the process to get his med card was easy. He took a trip to Denver, met with a doctor, and then he started using cannabis a lot. 
honestly probably smoked every couple hours and um, I would eat a very large edible at night and one in the morning also. And I, I, at, at night, I'd usually uh, smear some salve on uh, my back and my hip, different places where I've had injuries. I mean, I was trying to get it in me any way that I possibly could. But he's slowed down in his cannabis consumption since then. Kale says as his PTSD gets less severe and his other symptoms become more manageable, it's been easy to wean himself off marijuana. After I was, I came off all the pharmaceuticals, I, I really started asking myself, do I, do I really need all of this cannabis all the time? And, and the answer was, was actually no. Pretty quickly, I, I started scaling back my use, reducing my intake, and, and now I've got it down to a point where I only smoke occasionally. Kale's become an advocate to help veterans get access to cannabis all over the country. And he says the large majority of vets he knows use it. There are a lot of success stories. People like me and people like a lot of my friends out here, too. They've all managed to at least reduce their symptoms to a large degree. And some of them have managed to almost achieve remission. Alexandra, that's an incredible story. I wonder, though, are there vets who haven't been helped by marijuana? Yes. Kale says it doesn't work for everybody. There are a few veterans that I know who can't deal with cannabis because it makes them paranoid. And he also made it clear that he doesn't think cannabis is the be-all, end-all cure for PTSD. In order to actually benefit from cannabis, you're going to have to start changing your life. If I sat here in my house and I just smoked cannabis all day, I would get limited benefit from it. But what cannabis did allow me to do is it allowed me to get out of the house. It allowed me to start interacting with other people and breaking my isolation. And that's really the number one thing that I think that you have to overcome, especially with veterans with PTSD, is the isolation. And there's movement to give vets access to cannabis in states where it's currently illegal. Is that right? Yeah. Kale says people are getting really curious in those states, and um, they might get a chance to try it soon if a bill that the House Veterans Affairs Committee approved keeps its momentum. The bill would give vets access across the country to cannabis to treat chronic pain and PTSD. Colorado's own Republican Representative Mike Kaufman is supportive of the legislation. Sandra, thanks so much for these stories. Thank you. About 5,000 people report they use marijuana in Colorado to treat PTSD. That's according to data from the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. But the agency just started tracking these users. Last July, the state legislature added PTSD to the list of conditions people can cite when applying for a medical card. But many were probably already using medical marijuana before this change. The doctors just would have given it to them for other reasons like chronic pain. Lots of other Coloradans use marijuana on the ski slopes, in their backyards, and in some unexpected places. I mean, what's more Colorado than this place? So I'm Amanda Hitz, and I teach Ben and Blaze yoga and cannabis-enhanced yoga. That's right, cannabis-enhanced yoga. And believe it or not, Hitz class, again, she calls it Bend and Blaze, is one of several places that offers this kind of yoga experience. The class is in a large renovated warehouse that's a co-working space for pot businesses. When I got there, about 40 millennials had set up their mats in a large, dimly lit room. Courtney Radford of Denver says people tend to do a double take when she tells them what she does on Thursday nights. Everyone's so intrigued. (laughs) But yeah, it usually takes like one or two, like, what? It's what? (laughs) And then they're like, oh, I want to come. That sounds super cool. 
So I set up my mat just to watch the whole scene. At other yoga classes, you see people running to get to class on time. Here, people come early to sit on their mats, smoke, and cough a lot. They also talk with each other. Hit says most teachers like to have quiet in the yoga room, but she wants people in the class to get to know each other. I really like to tear down those walls, those like... I can't talk because I'm in a yoga studio and I don't know anything about this person next to me walls because that's not what you find when you come to Ben and Blaze. Stephanie Tynes of Denver says the socializing and the pot are huge incentives to get to class. With the weed, it definitely helps get you there. <laughs> and then you like learn more of like actual yoga. Tynes says the pot helps with her flexibility and it makes it easier for her to focus on her breath. And no one worries about things like how they look doing downward dog or bow pose. So they see it as like, oh, everyone's going to, you know, be high. Like if I like mess up or whatever, no one cares. When Hits walks to the front of the room and starts the yoga, everyone quiets down. One more big breath in. Deep exhale. Students Courtney Radford, who works at a nonprofit, and Stephanie Tynsa, who works at a big company, say they don't like to talk about the class at work. They think there's still a stigma. I don't want to, like, scream it from the rooftops yet, but soon, I'm sure. (laughs) I, like, already feel it changing. I I brought my mom and stepdad to this class, (laughs) and they loved it. So that's it in a nutshell. Bend and Blaze Yoga, one of the many places Coloradans are using marijuana about five years after it was legalized. Andrea, thanks for this. And these yogis are clearly having a good time, but smoking anything isn't great for people's lungs, right? I mean, what are the health risks here? According to the American Lung Association, there are plenty. The group says smoking marijuana damages the lungs and that regular use leads to chronic bronchitis. The website says, quote, due to the risks it poses to lung health, the American Lung Association strongly cautions the public against smoking marijuana as well as tobacco products. And it does seem ironic that here you are doing yoga, something that's supposed to make you healthy and help you focus on your breath. And at the same time, you're inhaling something that isn't good for your lungs and makes you cough. So I guess you'd say do it at your own risk. All right. Well, all this week we are looking at how Colorado's experiment with legal pot has played out in the last five years. Tomorrow, there's a lot of conflicting data on what legal marijuana has meant for teenagers. We go to a school in urban Denver and one in the suburbs to ask teens what they think. It is open, and pretty much everywhere you look on every block, there's a dispensary, and the whole state smells like weed. That's tomorrow on Colorado Matters. When a newspaper closes or shrinks, it's the loss of a watchdog. But what does that mean practically? Well, according to a new study, a decline in coverage may end up hitting taxpayers in their wallets. Dermot Murphy is one of this study's authors. He's a finance professor at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and he's on the phone to explain. Hi, Dermot. Uh, Hi. Thanks for having me on today. Sure. You and your co-authors say the idea for this study came from a segment on John Oliver's Last Week Tonight. Apparently, in 2016, there was a segment about the troubles facing newspapers And Oliver aired these comments from David Simon. He's the creator of the HBO series The Wire and a former reporter for The Baltimore Sun. The day I run into a Huffington Post reporter 
at a Baltimore zoning board hearing is the day that I will be confident that we've actually reached some sort of equilibrium. You know, there, there's no glory in that kind of journalism, but that is the bedrock of what keeps, you know, got the next 10 or 15 years in this country are going to be a halcyon era for state and local political corruption. It is going to be one of the great times to be a corrupt politician. <laughs> so he's saying there, without that, that bread and butter coverage, uh, corrupt politicians will have a field day. Uh, why did that stick with you, first off? Well, we were already pretty aware of the problems with uh, with the local newspaper coverage in the United States. We knew that there were there was a lot of consolidation going on of the newspaper industry and a lot of cost cuts as well. So when we saw this John Oliver segment, we thought to ourselves, this seems like a really serious problem, actually. So since we're finance professors, maybe we'll try to look at this from a finance perspective to see if it truly is costing communities and taxpayers uh, real dollars. And naturally, Denver came to mind. Of course, we lost the Rocky Mountain News some years ago, and the Denver Post is struggling. And so your study uh, looks at how the decline in newspaper coverage, uh, particularly of city government, affects the interest rates cities pay when they borrow money, say through bonds. What's the connection? Well, so local newspapers provide a crucial government watchdog role. And when those newspaper clo- newspapers close, then the government is no longer being watched. So they're more likely to engage in bad behavior and just generally become more inefficient. And so when a government is more likely to engage in bad behavior and, be, and is more inefficient, then the lender has to really start thinking about the interest rate that they have to ask for. So if a lender is to lend money to a government, then they'll ask for a higher interest rate if they deem that government to be a riskier borrower. Just like if they deemed it to be a safe borrower, then they would ask for a lower interest rate. And so since there is no watchdog role anymore uh, being, uh, being played by the media, uh, then ultimately this is going to cost taxpayers money because the government now has to pay more interest on their loans, basically. And so that means it's harder to fund uh, projects like uh, schools and hospitals and roadways and so on. That is to say, those loaning the money are likely to charge communities a higher interest rate if they think they can get away with more. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So if the government is not being watched, uh, then it's more likely that funds will be mismanaged, misappropriated and so on. And so if those funds are being mismanaged, then I am a little more nervous to lend to such a government. Uh, And so if I'm nervous about lending to somebody, then I have to ask for a higher interest rate to compensate for the risk of lending to that risky borrower. Fascinating. So is this just conjecture at this point, or do you have real evidence that this is a trend? I mean, we started with a conjecture. Uh, I mean, this was our hypothesis that that this would Uh, negatively affect government borrowing costs and ultimately cost taxpayers money. Uh, So we decided to undertake a systematic study by collecting newspaper data from from newspaper almanacs going back to 1996. And then we cross-referenced that with municipal borrowing cost data, so uh, the interest rate the governments pay. And using this uh, empirical strategy, we do find indeed that after a newspaper closes, governments are paying about 0.1% more on their interest rates in the long run, which does add up to uh, pretty significant money, actually. And that eventually gets passed on to taxpayers, right? Almost definitely. Uh, The government, uh, uh, say, borrows $65 million, and uh, they're going to have to pay an extra uh, $650,000 on a project. That could even triple if the local coverage problem continues to get worse. Um, 
and the government has to uh, fund many projects. So uh, this has to come out of somebody's pocket, and uh, the government is uh, representing the taxpayers. So uh, that's where uh, it's ultimately going to end up uh, uh, being a, a significant cost, basically. Is, is it that the lenders are seeing bad behavior and charging higher interest rates, or is it that they anticipate that without a thorough watchdog, that is more likely to happen and perhaps charging more to borrow? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, if the newspaper is no longer there, uh, then a lender can no, uh, the lender does not have an important source of information for determining whether the public agrees, whether a, public, uh, whether a, a, pro- a project is good or bad. Huh. Because if the lender is able to see in the newspaper that the public thinks this is an awful project that shouldn't be funded, then the lender would be a little more hesitant about lending. But the lender also knows that without the newspaper there covering uh, covering proposed projects in the local town hall or, or in the state house, um, then they know that they don't have as much information about the project, and they also know that the government is able to get away with more because they're not being watched. So I think there are a combination of factors going on here, but we definitely see that this does ultimately uh, cost uh, governments and taxpayers more. And how, how confident are you in this finding? Uh, it strikes me that there could be all kinds of reasons uh, that a city might pay more to borrow. How, how do you isolate this one and say, this is why? And, you know, this is a big challenge in finance and economics in general, is establishing causality instead of just finding a correlative uh, results, basically. Yeah. Uh, so we're able to establish cause and effect in, the, in a number of ways. So one of the interesting tests that we do is uh, we look at the uh, staggered arrival of Craigslist into different uh, counties over time, because Craigslist actually cost newspapers quite a lot of uh, revenues uh, during the uh, during the 2000s. Right, because so Cra- Craig's, when- Craigslist came online and uh, the ads that people placed, often the personal ads, right, um, uh, for things for sale, uh, those just plummeted, that revenue plummeted for papers. Oh, most definitely. And what we find in the data is that when Craigslist enters into a county, the probability of a newspaper closing increases by about 10%. And because of that, prob- because of that increase, uh, we see that subsequently there's an increase in borrowing costs as well. So that pinpoints the channel huh. uh, through which uh, the higher likelihood of a newspaper closure affects borrowing costs. So that, that's separate from the underlying economic conditions of the county, basically. Another interesting aspect of this work is that, you know, led by President Trump, there's a tendency to cast doubt on the information that people receive now from traditional media sources. You know, the term is fake news. Uh, But you say, perhaps ironically, that a robust news industry may be a conservative's best friend. I suppose you're talking about the fiscal impact when when you say that. Yes, that's certainly correct. Uh, Yeah, there's a lot of talk about fake news nowadays, but... uh... Uh, fiscal conservatives should uh, should definitely pay attention to our study because we're basically saying that this is going to save uh, money for both local governments and ultimately uh, for the pocketbook of the local taxpayer uh, because, uh, you know, the, the media plays a crucial watchdog role and they help to ultimately keep costs down for the community. So this is definitely uh, an argument that should be appealing to a fiscal conservative. So very briefly, did you find that, say, people in Colorado or Denver specifically are paying more with the loss of coverage? Can, can it be that specific? You know, we have looked at a variety of anecdotes across the United States, and one that we did notice early on was the Rocky Mountain News, in fact. And we do see that local borrowing costs uh, 
on average, they seem to increase after the closure of the Rocky Mountain News. Now, we don't want to say in this specific anecdote uh, it is completely due to the newspaper closure, but the overall data seems to point in that direction. And with the cuts going on to Denver Post, uh, we believe that um, the problems could get worse unless we reach a new equilibrium where the online sources uh, start to uh, fill in the gaps left by uh, the uh, uh, the closure of uh, local media outlets. But uh, as of right now, it doesn't seem like we are in that equilibrium yet. Fascinating. Dermot, thanks for being with us. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. He's Dermot Murphy, finance professor at the University of Illinois, Chicago. And we talked about his study of the connection between newspaper closures and a rise in the interest rates that city governments pay. Brent Cole started singing as a teenager in a Colorado Springs church. His dad was the pastor, but it was rock and roll that inspired the singer and guitarist to pursue a music career, first as the frontman of a band called You, Me, and Apollo, now as a solo artist. This year, NPR Music named Coles one of their favorite up-and-coming artists of 2018 and compared his music to that of the Avett Brothers and Alabama Shakes. He releases his debut album Friday. It's called How to Be Okay Alone. Where the fold is a crease that starts tearing And I am wearing thin Coles lives in Denver and performs tomorrow at Twist and Shout Records. Hi, friends. Hi, thanks for having me. Your first performances took place in that Colorado Springs church, but how did rock and roll come into your life? Um, you know, I think it was a, a buddy of mine that showed me a, a Tool record, and um, it was kind of the first first thing outside of um, Christian music I'd ever listened to. Uh, it was just some heavy, heavy rock and roll Um and it, it, from there, it just made me explore all, all kinds of rock and roll and all kinds of other music. And it wasn't long before I started praying to the rock gods. Praying to the rock gods. So Tool, this is the band from Los Angeles, the rock yeah. band. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And was that seen as sinful in your family to be listening to that music? Was that the kind of environment you grew up in? I think, I mean, early on, my parents were... Um, encouraged us to to listen to a lot of christian music but um as i as i discovered other uh uh genres and and um artists outside of of the christian realm my parents weren't very uh they weren't upset at all and they 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 knew uh you know i i I have to find my own path and and they they encouraged that so i was i was lucky to have very supportive parents and uh I, i i really enjoy your voice i mean all of the places that you take it Thank you. And stretch it. Sometimes it reminds me of Natalie Merchant. I, oh, maybe sure. that's a weird. No, I mean I I connection to there me. I have a I feel like my voice has a lot of facets. There's there's different. There's quiet. There's loud. And there's different kind of like raspiness in here and there. And there's a there. I think there's a lot of influence. And it's I I like hearing what people what other people hear in in that. What do you hear in it, or who did you model it after? Um, I mean, I, I I got into a lot of um, soul music, and that's kind of where I learned uh, like a lot of falsettos and and how to kind of put some growl into it. Huh. Um, and so, soul singers like who? Um, like Sam Cooke, Otis Redding. Um, those those guys were were kind of 
my two favorites, favorite go-tos. Um, Sam and Dave was is one of my favorite um, duos of of all time, and um, yeah, I mean it. it just from there, it kind of grew. Anything I've ever listened to, there's a lot of folk country music that is that um, like Willie Nelson and Johnny Cash, uh, that I think also plays a factor into our music. And um, and then you know, just listening to like rock and roll bands like CCR and 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 bands that like to get loud and get people dancing. Creedence Clearwater Revival. Yeah, yeah I grew up with that too. My mom was a huge fan. Let's sure. let's hear your voice again. This is the song Tequila Train by Brent Coles. I've been losing, the I've been losing, losing, losing my mind. I need a bone. Give me peace now. You started the band Yumi and Apollo at age 16, led it for eight years, and then the group split up in 2014. I understand that after that, you thought of giving up on music. Yeah, I think I had to go through a bit of a grieving process. Um, right after it happened, it took me, you know, it took me questioning everything to really realize how bad I, I wanted it. And I think it's important to have some doubt in order to be really faithful in what you're doing um because otherwise how do you really know that it's what you want to do and if you don't question it um, you never figure it out that's interesting because you you speak of it almost like religious faith yeah i mean it's faith in the rock and roll gods you mentioned earlier (laughs) you know yeah i think growing up in the church and you know I, i i i pulled a lot of morals and 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 just like a way of thinking i i think from my dad he's you know um, i i respect him um amongst amongst the top people that i i i hold in in regards um to to trying to model my life after theirs and um he's he was a huge influence in just how my brother and i um kind of make made made our ways through made make our way through life i think he's been um kind of you know always always in the back of our heads and and a lot of those morals yeah probably do come from the church um but yeah it it, it took me a minute to realize music's the only thing i want to do that you want to do your early solo gigs were just you and acoustic guitar and it was around this time that you got some advice from one of your musical heroes nathaniel rateliff uh, who leads the denver band the night sweats what did he tell you um i mean he he told me that uh you know uh, a lot of his big influences in in music and in life were were guys with an acoustic guitar but if he could give me one piece of advice it's get an electric guitar and start a band and uh i think it was the next day i went out and bought an electric guitar and it wasn't long after that i started working with joe richmond who um, is my drummer and producer and has helped me create kind of the the band that that uh, i get to rock and roll with every night
gosh, that tune has so much energy. The debut album, Brent Coles, is called How to Be Okay Alone. I understand the title comes from a line you wrote in your notebook. The idea was to write a list of ways to be okay alone. Yeah. Do you remember a few of the ways you came up with? Well, it's funny how I I wrote that the title of the list with with a colon after it with every intention of making a list and it it just never happened it, oh. it the, the notebook filled up with other entries and i ended up writing a bunch of music in that that span of time where that was kind of just on my mind and most of that music's on this record now um but that as i f- was flipping through my notebook maybe looking for lyrics for another song i saw that that list title just sitting there with with nothing in it and it it kind of stood out to me as like that's that's the title of this album that's where all this music comes from and i haven't figured anything out so i i feel like you know this is part of that journey and and that that just kind of made sense are you alone i i mean i have i'm i'm date i have a girlfriend and okay. and i think it's are, it, would you be okay if you didn't so i think i mean i think that's what we all try to figure out right is like how like how do you not depend on someone else for your own self-contentment and how and how to make yourself happy without relying on other people but still being grateful and and having the the support system of friends and and loved ones that that do do are there for you but you're not necessarily dependent on them and and overusing that that love that they have for you do you think you've struck the right balance I think it's I think it's going to be a learning process for for a long time. I don't know if I'll ever find the exact recipe for it, but if I do, I mean that'll that'll be the next album. Is okay. I've come back out. on and tell us, will you? <laughs> Absolutely. I'm sure many people hope to strike that balance. Sure. You recorded most of this album in Southern California in a somewhat unconventional spot. You rented out someone's home through Airbnb. Yep. Absolutely. We uh, we wanted to make it an experience, um, the, like a destination recording um, process. And it, it, you know, we were fully immersed. We're, there's no cell signal. We're just there to do what we were there to do, and that's make a record. Um, no cell signal. In other words, you couldn't be interrupted. Exactly. Huh. Yeah, there's no there. You're not at home, you know, remembering, oh, I, I meant to do laundry this week or I meant to, you know, um, change out the the filters and in, in the Brita at, on the sink <laughs> like it, there's just it's just music you know it's it you're just there to create something and and um in you're in a beautiful environment and you, with your best friends i think it it should be fun and that's how music uh, is 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 made well as you're you're enjoying the process. Did the owner of the Airbnb know that it would be turned into a recording? Studio? I did. I okay. warned him. I was <laughs> I was afraid to just kind of wing it, so I, I gave him some forewarning and and told him, you know, we'll put everything back exactly how we we had it. But I wanted you to know there's going to be a full drum kit and some guitar amps rocking for a few days. <laughs> and and now that Airbnb lives in sort of musical infamy, I guess. We're speaking with the Denver musician Brent Coles, and on Friday he releases his debut album, How to Be. Okay Alone. This is the title track. I've been thinking hard Feeling low After broken bones I still don't know How to be okay alone Thanks so much for being with us. 
Thanks for having me. Brett Coles performs tomorrow at Twist and Shot Records in Denver, June 29th in Telluride, and August 18th at the Velorama Music Festival in Denver. I'm Ryan Morner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You'd have to hold me down to cut me loose from this crew.